All right, guys. Well, this morning we are going to be continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, which, incidentally, we are six months into our church and we are six months into our study of the Gospel of Mark. We like to keep things simple around here. We're not very creative, so we just call our series things like Mark, and we just teach straight through books of the Bible. And I think the passage we're going to go into this morning is particularly impactful because Jesus is having a conversation mainly with one person. It's a very personal interaction. And I think part of the reason it's also impactful is because this one person believes a common lie that our culture believes about Christianity. And that common lie is that Christianity is just something that you can add on to your already existing life. All you have to do is sort of add Christianity onto what you're already doing, and that's great. And what Jesus is going to say to us in this passage is, I want to explode that entire idea. I want you to get that idea out of your mind and understand that Christianity is more like when the Metrodome got blown up and was replaced by U.S. Bank Stadium. So some of you remember this. I had to go back and watch some videos because I wasn't in the Twin Cities when this happened. But there was this idea to blow up the Metrodome and to build the monstrosity that is U.S. Bank Stadium. And so I looked up some stats just to show that U.S. Bank Stadium is, in fact, way better than the Metrodome. Because my guess is there were some people at that time who were kind of resistant to it because they were at Game 7 of the World Series in 1991 with tears running down their face. They're like, you can't blow up the Metrodome. This place is amazing. But they didn't know how amazing U.S. Bank Stadium was going to be. So did you know that the Metrodome was built in 1982 for $55 million? By contrast, U.S. Bank Stadium was built in 2016 for guess how much? One billion dollars, right? <laughs> billion dollars. The Metrodome was 900,000 square feet. U.S. Bank Stadium was one, is 1.75 million square feet. Okay, and just to show you how outdated the Metrodome was, there were 280 high-def TVs in the Metrodome. There are 2,400 high-def TVs in U.S. Bank Stadium. And there were only 546 premium parking spots around the Metrodome. And thank goodness there are 2,500 parking spots around U.S. Bank Stadium. So here's the deal, right? There were people who were holding on to the Metrodome because they couldn't imagine what U.S. Bank Stadium was going to be like. And so somebody had to initiate the explosion, right? So you can go online and watch kind of the different videos and it's kind of fun as they deflate the roof of the Metrodome and blow it up and, and all that kind of thing. And so here's what I think Jesus is gonna do for us today. In three separate explosive truths, he is going to show us the inadequacy of American cultural Christianity and show us the way of true biblical Christianity. So here's the three explosive truths. You ready? Get your head blown off. Number one, the insanity of human effort. Number two, the complexity of God's goodness. And number three, the freedom of God's love. So the first one we're looking at is the insanity of human effort. Let me start by reading all the way through Mark chapter 10, verses 17 
through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, so we can get the scope of the entire story. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. So the place that in this passage I think we see the insanity of human effort is we see it in this question that sets the stage for us. The question that the rich young ruler, as he's called, asks. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life. The rich young ruler made the assumption that eternal life was for sale and he would be able to earn it. And I think as we read through the text, we can understand why this person thought that he could earn eternal life. He thought he could earn eternal life through his own efforts. He's a pretty upstanding guy, isn't he? He's a pretty noble character. If there was somebody who could earn eternal life, it would be this guy. We see that. The text says, he ran up and he knelt down before Jesus. Which of us has that kind of passion to be in the presence of Jesus? He's passionate. He's heard that Jesus is on this road. He runs to see him. And when he gets there, there's a crowd of people. He's rich, he's powerful, he's got position, people probably recognize him. And even so, he gets down on his knees. He shows a great display of public humility. Which of us, at any point in our life, has demonstrated that kind of passion for Jesus coupled with that kind of humility? And then he says to Jesus, good teacher. 
In other words, as there's some confusion going around in that region of the world at that time about who Jesus is, he accurately says, again, publicly, what his position on Jesus is. He calls him good. In other words, he shows respect for Jesus. He puts Jesus in a place of honor. And secondly, we see that he has good doctrine, right? He understands rightly that Jesus is separate from the bad teachers and that he's actually in this category of being good and that he has some good things to teach us. So we see that the rich young ruler is not only humble and passionate, but he also has great respect for Jesus. He maybe even stands in awe of Jesus. And he has some pretty good doctrine. Thirdly, Jesus asks him this question about the Ten Commandments. We'll dive a little bit deeper into this later. But he kind of walks him through the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler replies to him, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, we're going to see later, the rich young ruler really didn't keep all those from his youth. But here's what's probably true about him. He was an outwardly noble, rather moral, upstanding, disciplined, and hardworking guy. This guy had his stuff together. And the evidence that he had his stuff together was his wealth. He was the guy who wakes up at 5.30 a.m. every day, has his quiet time, sips his coffee, goes to work, works hard the entire day, isn't doing anything wrong with the secretary, comes home to his family, loves them and cares about them. And so he fully expects when he comes to Jesus and he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That Jesus is just going to say, well, here you go. And then he's going to do what he's always done. He's going to check the boxes and he's going to walk away feeling like, okay, now I've got the list of how to sort of build and grow my business. I've got the list of how to love and serve my family. And I've got the list of how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus' essential response is, it's not for sale. It's not for sale. See, what this man failed to see was that this was quite possibly the most prideful question that he could ask Jesus. And I think the crux of the matter is he underestimated the value of what he was trying to buy. Trying to purchase through his own efforts eternal life. And you know how I think he probably got there? It's because throughout his whole life, that's how life seemed to work. If there was something of value... He put his effort and his discipline and his passion on the table. He ran hard for a little while, and at the end of the day, he got his prize. So this would sort of be like 
thinking because you're really good at Monopoly that you would make an amazing real estate developer. All right, so imagine this. You've been playing a lot of Monopoly. You are like dominating your cousins and your friends and your wife or husband. And I mean, you are getting really, really good at Monopoly. And in fact, every time you play, you've just got stacks and stacks and stacks of Monopoly money. I think, man, I am the man at real estate development. And so what you do is you actually start finding people online who are giving away Monopoly games for free. And you get a briefcase and you start stacking Monopoly money in the briefcase. You shut it. And then you find the big wig real estate developer in the Twin Cities. And you arrange a meeting with him. And you start talking to him and said, I'd like to purchase all of your properties in the Twin Cities. The guy's like, wow, you're young. You must have some serious cash. And you're like, you have no idea how much cash I have. You're sitting at his desk. You got a nice suit on, whatever. All of a sudden, you pop the briefcase open, and it is filled to the brim with Monopoly money. <laughs> Check it out. This is the conversation that the rich young ruler is having with Jesus. He has come with his A game in Jesus' presence. Check it out. Look at my Monopoly money. Don't you think if anyone could earn eternal life, it could be me? And we know if we were that real estate developer, the guy with the Monopoly money, we'd be laughing in his face and calling security, right? But what we see is the amazing goodness and compassion of Jesus, even for people like the rich young ruler, and by the way, like us, who would think that eternal life is for sale the compassionate way that he deals with us. But the question I want to answer first is, why did the rich young ruler ask such a crazy question? And I think that the answer is he underestimated the complexity of the goodness of God. The complexity of God's goodness. So we see that he ran up to Jesus, and again he said, Good teacher. And Jesus' response to him is, why do you call me good? There's nobody good but God alone. And then you might think that Jesus started taking the conversation in a different direction. Why did Jesus start talking about God's commandments? Why did he walk, walk through what's ordinarily called the second table of God's law. In other words, sort of the horizontal commandments. Why does Jesus get into commandments? Why doesn't he sort of continue the conversation about God's goodness? And I think the answer to that question is that the commandments are a reflection of the complex goodness of God. In other words, the commandments are one of the places 
where God displays to human beings what his goodness is like. They're meant to be like a mirror that show us that God alone is good and that we are woefully ignorant and fall far short of his standard. But what happens in this conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler is we learn that his view of God's goodness is very superficial. Jesus walks him through the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he kind of interrupts him right there, which is interesting. He says, teacher, I've kept all of these commandments from my youth. Which shows that the rich young ruler, like many in our culture, have a very superficial view of the commandments of God. It's evident that the rich young ruler had never heard the Sermon on the Mount before. Or he would know that if you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. He would know that if you're even angry with somebody, that you have committed murder. But instead of allowing God's law to do what it was meant to do in his life, he instead looks at the law and his assumption is that he has kept the commandments of God. And it's interesting because even at this point, Jesus doesn't start yelling at him. He doesn't say, don't you get this? Don't you understand how much of a sinner you are? Jesus continues to gently lead, lead him by the hand. So we see Jesus making a first pass at exposing this guy's depravity and immorality and need for God's grace. And then we see Jesus kind of pause. This guy's just interrupted him, been kind of rude, totally gotten it wrong. And the text says, Jesus stopped, he looked at this man, and he loved him. You know, if you've come here this morning and you don't like that whole sin thing, you're like, you know, I like the Christianity thing except for when people start talking about sin. This sounds kind of old school. You sound like a fundamentalist. You know what? Jesus looks at you this morning and even in the place that you're at, even though you have broken his law, even though sin is a real thing, even though you may be in this position like the, the rich young ruler, Jesus looks at you this morning and he loves you. And I think part of the reason that Jesus takes this moment to pause for the rich young ruler and for all of us is he's about to press in. See, when Jesus loves you, he will not leave you where you are. But he wants you to understand that his love is both tough and tender. That Jesus holds the line and he doesn't love you based on your ability to hold the line. 
So you'll notice that the rich young ruler cuts Jesus off before he gets to the command that would most expose him. You guys know the last of the Ten Commandments? Do not covet. See, the last of the Ten Commandments has to do with money. And so what Jesus is doing when he says to the rich young ruler, go sell all you have and follow after me, is he is personally applying the 10th commandment to the rich young ruler's life. He is showing him the goodness of God and the rich young ruler's inability to be good all in one explosive, fatal stroke. And at that point, he's undone. And it's one of the saddest, I think, statements in the Bible. As he's standing before Jesus, and Jesus tells him to go sell all that he has, follow after him. It says that he walks away sad. It really is a great tragedy when we come face to face with Jesus and we're exposed for what we are that at that point in the conversation, we walk away sad. But then the question becomes this. What do we do with a God who is this good? Because I think our normal understanding of goodness is that God will just lower his standards for us. Ten Commandments, those aren't really binding on us. We can't keep them. God kind of hands out his love like the candy store hands out candy. Just go in, smile on your face. You never have to be sad. You just grab some candy and go away and you're happy. But do you understand that if God is a God of justice, that he can't just let you get away with what you've done. Any imperfection in any of us cannot be in the presence of God. So the question is, how can anyone be saved? And that's the question that the disciples begin to ask Jesus after the rich young ruler goes away sad. And Jesus' answer is they can only be saved by the freedom of God's love. Each of us can only be saved because God's love is not something that can be earned. It's a free gift. So here's a question that I have for you. When Jesus was having this conversation with this rich young man, and he said to him, go sell everything that you have and come follow me, was he saying to him, the only way that a person can be saved is if you're really, really, really committed? If you will really sacrifice everything, if you will go all in for Jesus, then he'll save you. That's the question the disciples are asking. 
They say, wait, how can anybody get saved? And Jesus says something surprising, doesn't he? He says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And the disciples blurt out, right? They say, okay, okay, okay. We have left everything and followed after you. Woo! We've inherited eternal life. We've done what you just asked this guy to do. And it's really interesting, the conversation that Jesus begins to have with them. He doesn't so much talking and talk about them having earned their salvation. Instead, he talks about them having received their salvation. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. See, what Jesus is exposing is two different ways to try to save yourself. See, what the rich young ruler was trying to do was to save himself through his own success. He was trying to find his validation and his security in his money. But his money was just a trophy that he had on the shelf that was convincing him that he was more worthy of eternal life than everyone else around him. He believed the prosperity gospel. God has blessed me. Look at all the stuff that I have. Since God has blessed me, I must be earning his favor and have a free ticket into eternal life. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the disciples had the perspective that they were earning their validation and security through their sacrifice. We have given up everything to follow after you. They thought, look, there's a big difference between us and this rich young man, right, Jesus? He won't give up his possessions. We did give up all of our possessions. Therefore, we're saved, right? So they were getting their validation and security in a religious way by other people looking at them and saying, wow, I could never do what they do. They're really committed to Jesus. I don't think I could ever go all in for him like that. And Jesus' response to both the person with worldly success who's trying to earn their way to God and the religious person is the same. It's impossible for both of you to get saved. Notice he doesn't just say it's impossible for wealthy people to get saved. Jesus says that the first time. But the second time, he says that it's impossible for anybody to get saved. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A person who is either rich in money or rich in sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Now, there's been a little bit of debate about what this verse means. And some people think there was like a hole in the wall in Jerusalem and that 
called the eye of the needle and that, you know, there was these camels and the only way to get a camel through the eye of the needle was to take all of the baggage off of their back. That is not true. Jesus is being funny, okay? He's saying, imagine the eye of a needle. It's really, really small. A camel, especially a two-hump camel, it's really, really big. I don't think it could fit through there. Do you guys? No. We don't think a camel. How would you get a camel through the eye of a needle? Okay, let's have a little bit of fun with this. Imagine there's three camels. Their names are Larry, Jerry, and Mary. Okay? And they find out that there is a portal to camel paradise through the eye of a needle. Okay, so Larry... Kind of like the rich young ruler. He's like, okay, how am I going to get through the portal to camel paradise where there's always sand, but there's great places to drink and no one ever rides on your back. (laughs) And so he puts his sunglasses on. He sort of looks like the outside of a a package of camel cigarettes, right? he's He's got the sunglasses on and he brushes his teeth and puts the gold chain on. Maybe I can get through the portal if I show how successful I am. So that's Larry. Jerry decides to fast and pray. He decides, the only way I can get in through the needle hole to camel paradise is if I really thin out through fasting and I pray all the way there. So he does that. And then you have Mary. And Mary says to Larry and Jerry, a camel can't fit through the eye of a needle. I'm not going to do anything. And let's see who gets through. And so Larry walks up to the eye of the needle. And he tries to get through and he can't get through. And Jerry walks up to the eye of the needle and he tries to go through and he can't get through. And they look at each other and they say, well, if neither of us got in, then who can get in? Who can get to camel paradise? And Mary confidently walks towards the eye of the needle. And somehow, she goes right through. And there's somebody sitting next to the needle. And Larry and Jerry say, how do you get through the eye of the needle? And he says, all you need is nothing. And neither of you guys have that. I'm like, shoot. And they walk away sad. Guys, this gospel message is so simple. All you need to be saved is nothing. It's impossible. You can't do it through human effort. You can't do it by being successful enough or religious enough or humble enough or good enough. And you can't disqualify yourself by being bad enough or lazy enough or immoral enough. And that's because the basis of getting through the eye of that needle is not human effort at all. The good news that we proclaim week in and week out is that there's only one 
person whose effort got them through the eye of the needle, and that is Jesus. You see, Jesus came face to face, not just with the second table of the law, but with all of God's commandments, which is summarized by loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. And where we fail the test day in and day out, Jesus passed the test with flying colors. And then something absolutely crazy happened at the end of his life. The one who had earned God's favor through his efforts, who was the dear son whom God had loved, hung on the cross. And the meaning of that is not that he was dying for his own sins, but that he was dying for your sin and for mine. He was dying to make the impossible possible. He was making it possible for you to get eternal life and requiring nothing of you except that you simply believe that he took your place. So my question is, will you drop your success? Will you drop your religion? And will you trust that Jesus has done for you what you could never do and what you will experience is you will stand on this side of eternal life and you will look back at the needle and you will start laughing. You will say, I can't believe I got through. I got through the needle. No way. And this is what will happen. You will have so much joy that the impossible has happened in your life that you will be freed up to sell everything that you have and follow Jesus. You will be freed up to let go of all of your possessions and all your religion because you don't need them anymore. You don't have to save yourself. You'll be free. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have made the impossible possible. That you can get a camel like me through the eye of a needle. that we don't have to put our best face on, that we don't have to be successful, that we don't have to be religious. We can just be needy and desperate and plain and insignificant. We can walk right into your kingdom through the blood of your cross. Thank you for showing us what it means to be saved. Thank you for making these things plain in your word. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.